Hello and welcome to the back page of Video Games Podcast. I'm Sammy Roberts and I'm joined today by Matthew Castle. Hello. How's it going, Matthew? Yeah, it's it's not bad. It's not bad. I've um, I've been listening to lots of game soundtracks from 2006 <laughs> inspired by uh, that podcast episode. Uh, it made me, I don't know, it made me very nostalgic. So I've, um, yeah, I've been listening to some Twilight Princess music. Oh, nice. That's some pretty, uh, some pretty fresh beats there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I appreciate that. I, uh, I can't say I've been listening to the Gears of War or the Loco Roco soundtracks, but it's only a matter of time, I'm sure. I mean, they're basically the same soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so today, Matthew, we're talking about Cyberpunk 2077. Uh, the game from CD Projekt Red that's been much anticipated and has launched with... Uh, it's been a contentious launch, hasn't it? Let's face it. There's, uh, As we're recording this, you're listening to this uh, basically the week after uh, we're recording this, and they've uh, just issued an apology uh, via Twitter for the uh, base versions of the game on PS4 and Xbox One uh, for their performance issues. Uh, the game has uh, is very buggy no matter which platform you're playing it on, and generally there's this feeling that it's not quite finished uh how are you feeling about the whole thing matthew um yeah i i've I've been uh playing cyberpunk quite intensively for for about a week um i did a review of it and kind of sort of submerged myself into it when i was playing it it was pre-release it was kind of free of the discourse Mm. uh, which was nice and um you know always always the best conditions to be doing it in um but yeah weirdly like then it you know all the reviews came out and everything kind of kicked off and i was kind of trying to write my review in that because i was doing it for a magazine so luckily i didn't have to hit the kind of embargo date of whenever it was just before release Mm. so i had a little bit more time to kind of mull on it uh, than some of my peers um but yeah all this stuff was kicking off and it was all a bit nightmarish and i just kind of shut off a fair amount of it just to kind of get on with my review and i've only been kind of dipping back into it now because i wanted a bit of distance but yeah it's it's pretty messy yeah for sure so in this episode we're going to talk about the game i've played a bit of the game matthew's obviously played a lot of it um so we won't go into it in like really forensic detail because you've kind of already done that with a, an existing podcast, haven't you, Matthew? I've chatted about it a bit on RPS and on an RPS stream, um, so people can hear my sort of thorough thoughts there. But I'm happy to happy to hear your thoughts, Sam, on what you've played so far, and answer any questions you may have on for someone who has played a ridiculous amount of this game. <laughs> Yeah, sure. So uh, my feeling playing it is uh, I, I feel very fortunate that I can run it at 60 frames, 1080p, uh, which is, um, I think, a sign that it's quite badly optimised because I, I have a GTX 1080 uh, Ti, and it's uh, this was it's not like a um, cutting-edge graphics card anymore. It doesn't have ray tracing, but it's still a very good graphics card that runs yeah. most games at 1440p, um, 60 frames plus, no problem. Uh, and it's um, it's. I had to drop a few settings from Ultra to get it running at a smooth-ish 60. And so you can tell it's intensive. And it's no surprise to me that the uh, current-gen console versions uh, don't run that well. And, um, yeah, I, you know, my feeling with it is, I, I, uh, so far, I, I don't think it's a great shooter or a great stealth game. And that's my main disappointment, is I, I'm a huge fan of Deus Ex Dishonored, these kind of immersive sim games. And I felt like... CD Projekt was sort of selling this dream of, yes, it's an RPG with RPG progression systems, but in terms of how the missions go down, they're meant to be a bit more immersive, Simi. And there are elements of that in there. You can hack different parts of the environment, distract enemies, um, perform stealth kills, and then obviously if you get caught, it all kicks off. 
Um, but so far, and I've only played like th- about four hours of it, so and I've done three missions, so there's not loads to draw upon here, but it doesn't strike me as a great stealth game, Matthew. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that's fair. Or, or rather, it's like very easy to manipulate. Um, I think a lot of it probably comes down to the fact that those games, while absolutely beloved by us and many of our friends and journalists, games journalists and games critics tend to go big in for like Deus Ex and Dishonored. Mm. They aren't really mainstream games, no. which this kind of definitely is or wants to be. And I fear that that's what sort of holds it back from going all in on some like really nerdy granular shit that would be make the, both the, the shooting and the stealth a lot more fun. Um, as it is... Uh, the stealth is kind of tied to hacking i feel like a lot of the tricks you have are basically different names for the same things Mm. it's kind of distract a guy with a thing or distract a guy by buzzing his head or lure a guy over to you Uh, it's 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 not as sophisticated as as um yeah deus ex or dishonored um in in that sense but it does other stuff that those games don't do as well you know i think it's you know a pretty good story it's pretty slick when it's in story mode mm. yes and also um you know not discounting the fact it is an open world game and regardless of the um, number of glitches in the game i've encountered plenty this morning i was um, just running along the street and the sun was behind v uh, my character and um the uh i could see the t pose visible in the shadow on the floor uh from where my character had been like sort of stuck in the air and the running animation wasn't working properly, so I was just kind of floating in the T-pose, um, and I could see it happening. And um, then I summoned my car, and then it kind of... Uh, the, the summon car animation stuff, there's some quite wild gifts out there about this at the moment. <laughs> um, but they, they do the very bold thing of showing the car turning up uh, and how it gets to you, which GTA Online doesn't do that. You summon the car, and it's just there. Yeah. And that's a better way of doing it, I would say, in terms of the practicalities and challenges, but... Yeah, so um, it's glitchy, but um, as an open world, it is amazing. Uh, and if they um, they've got a long way to go with fixing the bugs, and I'm I'm not saying that they necessarily should have released it in this state because it seems like they probably shouldn't have. Uh, but that first moment where you step out of your apartment block into Night City, it's a hell of a moment if you've got the hardware to run it. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, yeah, it's a place that kind of. Yeah, it has constantly amazed me, like, you know, throughout. And even now, 70 hours in, like, you'll happen upon places which are, you know, so novel and, and brilliantly designed from an art perspective that it makes you wonder why the game, like, doesn't force you into a lot of it. Like, it actually doesn't use a lot of the city, which is which is quite odd. And I know that's true, actually, of, of a lot of sandbox games, but there's some pretty amazing stuff where, you know unless you're really going for like every little blue marker on the map i don't know if you'd ever really go there and you can miss great sort of you know interesting chunks even stuff where they've embedded story so one of the one of the kind of big hooks of the game is that keanu reeves plays this guy called johnny silverhand who for story reasons is embedded in your head and that means you can kind of visualize him and see him around the place and he'll pop out and offer commentary and that's largely in the story stuff but there's also some locations where he'll just pop up because you're near them and he'll be like, oh, yeah, I, I remember this place, you know, great coffee or whatever. <laughs> um, and, you know, when you discover one of those places in like some random little corner of the map where you've, you've only gone out of boredom, you know, rather than uh, any kind of mission marker. And there's a little bit of story there. I don't know. That's that's 
it, it does show that it has got this amazing, awesome scale to it. I mean, it has these problems, but it's, you know, it's not for a sort of want of or lack of ambition. Yeah, for sure. And also, um, I would say that despite the lack of polish elsewhere in the game, so far I've been very impressed by how the cutscenes and the story sections look. Um, yeah, I, they're, they're great. I, mean, I think it's, in places, it's as flashy and as polished as like what you'd expect in a Call of Duty campaign, mm. you know, and that the action is as sort of furious and exciting, you know, in its concepts, yeah. um, which is, which is, you know, kind of crazy, really. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's sort of, um, it's like that, it's a, it is a GTA style game in, you get in a car, you drive around, you collect cars, all that stuff. But the, the kind of types of NPCs you're seeing are almost like the, like kind of Bethesda game scale NPCs where, you know, you can walk up close to them and talk to them and stuff like that. And so it does feel like there's, it's like GTA mixed with uh, that kind of open world RPG template. And it's, I don't know, it's a, it's a, it's a compelling combination. It's just, um, I, I don't know, it's, it's just, it's going to become such a contentious game uh, forever now. Um, mm. And uh, as a result of some factors we'll talk about in a little bit. But I'm wondering, uh, Matthew, you're deeper into it. So, and what are the interesting ways in which the um, the progression affects the combat and and the gameplay generally? Like, how does it how does it kind of morph as it goes along? I mean, you you do become a lot more powerful. It's 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 kind of a confusing one to pin down, just because you can push the character in so many different directions. You know, I so you know I was very kind of stealth focused, which relies on a lot of hack work, I'd say. Um, but at the same time, you know, even if you don't invest heavily in in gunplay your guns are naturally getting stronger because you're you know you're finding new loot it's a very loot heavy game you know it's almost the sort of borderlands in the number of guns you're constantly picking mm. picking up um and the very tiny differences between them um so i it, it's odd i i would say like i don't is there a problem with it but, but well in the story missions i feel like the action is either so scripted or designed for like anyone to be able to beat it no matter what v they bring into the scenario mm. that it almost doesn't ever lean on anything in any particular in in any kind of depth so it doesn't require like too much stealth or you know amazing guns or make because it doesn't know what you're going to have so you know by that it sort of diminishes the sort of feeling of importance of some of those skills so i wouldn't say the story mode is definitely or the main kind of story missions is necessarily the best place to like feel your character evolving even though they do um and then it's almost like around that there's this sort of uh, layer of side missions which they call gigs which are a lot more kind of like mechanical challenges. They're more like the Deus Ex levels. It's like, here's a warehouse, hmm. there's a guy you've got to kill in it, and when you approach it, you realise, oh, I could hack out all the defences, I could go in all guns blazing, I can buy some magic jumping legs to jump onto the roof and drop through the, the top of the hair, or if I'm strong enough, I can tear open this particular door. You know, there are a lot of entrances into these places, and that will feel f- more familiar to people who played, particularly the 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 two newer Deus Ex games, um, but it's I, I'd say one of its bigger problems is like coming up with proper challenges for the the kind of late game character. Mm. Um, if anything, I've cooled on the game a bit um, in since sort of finishing the story, and you know, and I really went deep into all the story and the the story side missions. But now I've played like another fifteen hours of like 
side content, the gigs and whatnot. And actually, you know, I'm just I can just you know walk over anyone in that world, which is a little disappointing because I I you know. I, I think those powers only really come alive when there's something suitably difficult to overcome. Mm. Do you think it'd be it's an interesting enough game to repeat on a harder difficulty, or is it not that kind of game? Yeah, though from what I can see, because I've been ramping up the difficulty, so I played it through on hard, and and this this was the case, and I've ramped up again, and it mainly seems to impact like enemy like health and uh, the damage you take. Right. So it really only changes combat. Like if you've got stealth down. Uh, stealth kind of plays out the same way on every difficulty, as far as I can tell from from my like experimentation with it. Mm. And because I've got a large stealth build, um, you know, I can kind of. It's quite hard for the game to kind of find anything to kind of stop me. Also, one of the more generous things it does is let you level up any weapon you've got, so that if you've got a weapon you love, you can kind of bring it with you through the game, and that's that's obviously great. But you can do this with these sort of iconic weapons, which are sort of one of a kind, uniques, um, which tend to have like lots of extra mad modifiers or whatever. And like for the last thirty hours, I've used the same two guns, just leveling them up, and they are so overpowered that you know I'd have to kind of go out of my way not to use them. And I, you know, I, I've seen some people sort of deal with this criticism online and say well just choose not to use them then and you're like yeah but that's i don't think that's really a good enough answer Mm. like i don't (laughs) i I want it to be like cheese proof (laughs) Um, rather than asking me to deliberately ignore stuff that i have in order to find some challenge in the game yeah um but this is something they could fix with like you know a big balancing patch or with dlc which adds a load of extra high level stuff but the, the the end game is quite disappointing and has coloured my general take on it. Ah, that's a shame. Uh, one of the things you said on Twitter that made me really intrigued about the game was that it's uh, as much a walking simulator as anything else. Yeah. So outside of the combat stuff, um, what are the, what's the kind of interesting types of quests you can find out there in Night City and the surrounding areas? So, yeah, a lot of it's about like the people you meet and the connections you make. And uh, one of the things the game does really, really well, actually, is it has this main storyline, which is quite short, but you meet lots of interesting people. And once you've met them in the main storyline... A lot of them will then spark up conversations and you'll branch off and do side missions with them, which can in turn then fold back into the main storyline, like how your relationship with them changes may alter the end of the game, for example. And those side content stories are often like not really about combat or stealth. They're very like social missions. They're Mm. almost like the uh, in Red Dead Redemption 2, the kind of stuff you do when people in your camp would say, do you want to go fishing with me? And you go off fishing and you have a load of it, you know, quite colourful dialogue and maybe something silly would happen or there'd be a little burst of combat somewhere along the way. But it's got this quite sort of laid back tone. You know, I'd say a lot of the side content is actually just so purely character driven. Mm. You know, it's go to this place, drive this character to a lo- location and then do something quite bespoke at that location. Mm. I won't spoil the things because... They are like the best moments in the game, and there's some really surprising stuff. Actually, you do some really amazing scenes, which are you know giant twenty-minute-long sequences that are built just for this little side mission, and you know that that's that's super impressive. But the um, the missions that kind of sparked off that tweet were involved basically Johnny Silverhand, who 
you know, he's in your head, has in, in the world of cyberpunk, has died in 2020, so many years before this game, but he has a lot of friends who obviously are still alive in 2077, and you kind of sort of deal with some of them in the side stories, and dealing with these, like, old rockers who've kind of gone to pot, or people who were really disappointed or let down by sort of Johnny Silverhand, and you're trying to sort of make amends or kind of give him the kind of last good night, you know, give him a big night out in the town that he never got as a kind of big farewell. And those are just, those are like pure walking, you know, you're just spending time with a character, you know, you can't fail them. Um, but they're like brilliantly observed and the voice acting them is absolutely superb. There's a character called Rogue who's like a fixer and the stuff with her is just, uh, it's incredibly like this sort of romantic and nostalgic and it, and it really surprises you because everything in this city is so like brash and obnoxious mm. to have that, that the strongest moments in the game are the bits where people are just like, oh, the good old days. And kind of, you know, getting off their chest things they wish they'd said. And, you know, maybe it just appeals to me because I'm quite a sentimental person. But um, I thought that stuff was not at all what I was expecting. It really changed the whole tone of the game for me. Mm, no, so I, I um, completely agree with you. The Red Dead thing uh, really makes me think of the random stranger missions you get in GTA 5 and 4. Where yeah. you'd see like a blue figure on the map. You drive over there and it it's like what you say, basically. It's like here's some rando you don't really know and your character has an encounter with them and it's just quite it's just nice to play out and you hear their story and then yeah and yeah. they're not like you can't really fail them you know they're not they're not designed as like hardcore challenges hmm. they're just really nice colorful kind of character beats um but you know the flip side to that is you know, when you've got this system with this huge mechanical kind of complexity and, and, you know, you can develop, you know, it's got the perk trees are just obscene. There's like 400 of individual perks or something. Um, you know, to have a game which doesn't really tap into any of those for so much of its content is quite odd. Mm. It's a bit overwhelming when you first um, start it, I would say, in terms of like the different... Uh, it's It's hard to get... I would say they're not very good at communicating... Um, how and why you should put points into various systems so um, I would say that kind of like the augmentations you get um, from that guy they're a bit easier to pass but the yeah. kind of progression trees and the, the the base stats I I couldn't quite f really figure out beyond a very basic level why I should be putting points into these things um, yeah. and I would say generally it's quite overwhelming like you say it's quite borderlandsy and that you can pick up every single gun that's dropped hmm. and you uh, might want to because you can go sell them um uh, uh, kind of a vendor or whatever but it, is, it definitely feels overwhelming when you first start it um, I would also say that tonally it's a weird game because I'm now getting to the point where I am getting some of this dialogue and characterization that I quite like and, and I'm quite enjoying some of the writing um, but it really presents itself as quite adolescent when you start like the like you say obnoxious kind of music and uh, it's like the montage um that you start with um with your character is pretty obnoxious too and it's like oh look how look how wild you are and the character creation screen i mean when you select the female character your female character is naked i don't know why uh, your male character is too but that too feels like a statement of I don't know if they're trying to say something, but it just comes across as pervert, this, like, female character model. Um, it's 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 weirdly unbalanced. In the rest of the game, there's a lot of female nudity, and, like, I don't think you ever see male genitals. 
mm. like on yourself in sex scenes, you're always weirdly wearing boxer shorts. Right. But the female characters won't be. They'll they'll be fully naked. Um, it's kind of leery. Yeah. Uh, it's like outside of that cust- It's like that customization screen's there to kind of, you know, act as a bit of a safeguard, so you can point to it and say, look. You know, you know, we're all for a quality of perviness here, um, but actually, in the game, it's just not true. You know, mm. if you pick up a naked dude, you'll see his boxer shorts are kind of like in your peripheral vision as you carry him over your shoulder. If you pick up a naked woman, you know, it's just her chest right there in the middle of the screen, and it's that's a bit like. It's definitely leery. <laughs> what a weird game tone-wise, then, <laughs> yeah. to have that mix of stuff. I, I feel like um, such a sort of dad in that <laughs> world, though, because everything I do is about taking the edge off it. So whenever I get a new car, it's always got a radio station set to like one of the raucous rock stations or some metal music, and I'm just like, quick, switch it to the jazz, switch it to the jazz station. You know, when I was going through the character creation, every character it gave me had like 15 piercings, <laughs> and it would just be like, well, let's remove all the piercings and, you know, see what they look like underneath and get rid of all the tattoos and all the cyberware in the skin. I want them to just look like me, basically. <laughs> Uh, clothes, you know, I'd, I I basically got a set of clothes that looked like a suit, and then I invested in upgrading them so I didn't have to change to, you know, a you know some kind of jacket that says "fuck" on it or something, <laughs> you know, because that's, that's not my vibe. No, I'm not too surprised to hear that, honestly. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can just kind of imagine you. I mean, if you if given the option, you going around all these kind of like uh, naked characters you see. You this is a dialogue option that says, "Put some clothes on, love," <laughs> yeah. and you're just handing them clothes from your inventory, um, just being this kindly dad figure. Uh, sort of uh, flashbacks of sort of mortifying childhood experience of going into a games workshop with my mum to, to buy some, you know, Warhammer. And uh, her telling the staff that she wouldn't buy anything from their shop unless they turned their music down. And I was just like, no! (laughs) I wished I was the size of a Warhammer miniature in that moment. (laughs) Wow, I mean, you were there thinking, will I ever regain my call with the people in Games Workshop? (laughs) What an existential crisis that must have been. Uh, Yeah, okay, um, great stuff. Uh, (laughs) I do, actually, one thing that is quite sweet in the game is that it's quite easy to pay as a non-drinker. Like, in a lot of drinking scenes, you'll have a dialogue option for booze and one for, like, lemonade or something. Mm. And they'll be like, yeah, sure, no worries. It, it's it's not like, you're a loser because you don't drink whiskey with Johnny Silverhand. Johnny Silverhand may say that, but the other characters are kind of cool with it. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Like, you really can roleplay as Matt Castle in the <laughs> I, uh, yeah, so I'm curious if there if there are any quests in the game, Matthew, that are a bit more like the kind of Witcher three quest that everyone bangs on about. Like, kind of, uh, is it the Bloody Baron one? Is it the Bloody Baron? Is that a Harry Potter character? It might be a Harry Potter character. <laughs> no, you know the one I mean. Yeah, that's 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 a that's a famous Witcher quest. I mean, I'd say that one there is probably famous because it's. I think it's a little overrated as a quest. I do like the Bloody Baron, but like it, you know, it comes quite early on, which is why I think a lot of people are quite hooked on that quest. Like mm. it's the first thing, it's the first big moral quandary you hit in that game, and it just makes me wonder: Did no one play past this? <laughs> um, but you know, it's brilliantly performed and acted in The Witcher, which the characters are in this as well. If anything, I think the first-person perspective really lets you like see those animations better. Mm. Like they're very good virtual performers. Um, 
and it has like quite a messy moral quandary at the heart of it, which there are in this like weirdly there aren't many versions there aren't many quest wires really like umming and ahhing like a lot of the time it's side with bastard a or side with bastard b it's it's not like i i didn't feel like i was being asked to kind of make any like really outrageously horrible calls given how like mad and unpleasant a lot of the technology is you'd think there'd be a lot more of that um where it is a lot like The Witcher is in those more social missions. Mm. I think um, people tend to forget, or, or not forget, like the, the, you know, a lot of the best moments in The Witcher are just characters hanging out. Like some of the stuff with Johnny uh, Silverhand's bandmates is very similar to like when you meet up with the old witchers in The Witcher Three, and you all just have a load of drinks and talk about the good old days. Like it actually taps into a lot of the similar kind of moments. Um, there's a there's a quest I absolutely love in the DLC Hearts of Stone called the uh, Dead Man's Party, where Geralt is sort of possessed by this ghost to show the ghost like one last good time, which is basically the entire pitch of Cyberpunk. <laughs> like that is what Cyberpunk is about, and uh, so that obviously has a lot of similarities. But th- th- I think their quests are almost best when they just let like quite warm, like funny character dialogue happen. You have a hero who's kind of slightly kind of uh, taken back by how strange some of the missions are, and that that for me, I get the big Witcher vibes. Um, less so in like the actual. I think the Witcher does like the actual kind of combat missions. You know, where you're going to hunt a monster or whatever are are better placed in that world and, and better delivered you know there are some kind of equivalents you know there are boss fights in cyberpunk and there are these sort of um mini bosses called cyber psychos who are kind of dotted across the map and you know they're just like boss fights that you find in the city and you know you, you wonder if they're meant to be a bit like witcher contracts because you can kind of spy on them beforehand and go oh this guy doesn't like you know, electric bullets or whatever, so I'll stock up on those before I fight him. But there was a lot more of that and a lot more depth to that side of things in The Witcher, so I don't know. I I still prefer The Witcher's spread of quests, Mm. Um, even though there is a lot more of The Witcher in Cyberpunk than I thought there was going to be, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, That's really interesting. So I don't want to dwell on the kind of outside factors that much because... I, I've definitely thought about the the alleged crunch stuff quite a lot, mm. um, but it is all people are kind of talking about at the moment on Twitter, along with the bugs of the game, and that's being dissected so thoroughly. It is almost good just to talk about the game. Um, yeah, it was it was a it was a really tricky one to review because you know you feel like you know there's a lot to say about what it is mechanically. Like it's it's very rare that people kind of try this kind of ambitious design and it's you know open world games you know they're obviously very prevalent and to see someone try something quite different in that structure is you know it's quite satisfying to kind of dig into the nuts and bolts and try and pin down you know why it's doing the things it's doing or why it makes you think feel the way you feel um so you know i can't i kind of did that more with with my review i you know i did i think you do have to note the crunch i don't think you can kind of pass it off mm. um also you know the debate about you know we all reviewed the pc version as far as i can tell uh which is obviously like the most stable still has the bugs but you know it looks you know really beautiful in places the whole 
it's totally bust on base consoles is it's just a nightmare scenario for reviewers um and how to talk about that and you know i think the best you can do is is make sure you cover it you know once you know what the deal is but in the review to sit there and go oh you know what am i reviewing here the best version of it the worst version of it Mm. i don't know it's i know it's really unsatisfying to say like there's not really an answer but i i personally do not have an answer (laughs) Well, I mean, the thing is that people were taken off guard by how bad the console versions were. I mean, I, I've only just, um, I was watching a Digital Foundry video on the um, base PS4 and Xbox One versions, and it is terrible. Just really kind of stuttery, yeah, uh, bad lack of detail. And to be honest, I think every, each time I saw this game, it did always look like it was beyond the capabilities of, um, you know, these yeah. 2013 consoles. Um yeah, when they announced it, I was like, oh, that's... when they first showed that gameplay at E3 or whenever it was, a couple of years ago, you know, I just took it, oh, as, as read that, oh, this is a next-gen game. Yeah. Um, but then it always happened. I don't know, it's, it's sort of weird. I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say this makes it okay, but I feel like there probably have been equally egregious examples of this generation crossover that haven't been reported on. Yeah. Like, I think there ha- there are always... There are a lot of crap 360 versions of games which were much shinier. Maybe not as severe as this, but th- there have there have been examples. Or just, you know, a, like a, a classic one, for example, is um, FIFA, you know, where everyone talks about the shiny version they have, where the one on Nintendo platforms has been, for a long time, the FIFA game from four years ago, and all they do is literally update the names, like there's not a change to it. And that sort of stuff feels like it goes unnoticed. Is the, is the game, is the story not sexy enough? It's the same problem. You know, it's someone kind of treating an older console with disrespect. Um, but yeah, that story doesn't tend to get picked up as much, but it happens a lot more than people think. I suppose the different differentiating factor here is the game was always planned to release a fair few months before the next-gen consoles landed. Oh, so. yeah. I mean, you know, to release that kind of void where there is no, you know, you don't have an Xbox Series X to put Cyberpunk in and see how it runs, it reportedly runs better on the newer consoles. I mean, it would have just, it, it might even have looked worse. Um, yeah, I, I mean, that, yeah, everyone keeps talking about, like, what happens if this had released in April? And you're like, yeah, if it's based on, because back then you would have had the PC version and this horrible base console version, mm. it would have, yeah, it would have looked terrible for them. <laughs> Yeah, it's rough stuff. Uh, it's a, an interesting, um, another interesting example of uh, the hype cycle that goes along with, uh, you know, blockbuster games. They had Keanu Reeves on stage at E3 last year, and um, you know, it was a moment everyone remembers. And um, uh, I don't know. It's, I don't want to talk about too much about the audience of Cyberpunk because it's a massive audience, and everyone wants to play it. So, yeah. but there's you know the an engaged kind of portion of the audience do seem to be absolute jerks um on social media that's maybe nice i suppose but (laughs) those kind of real gamer boys who have just kind of made the gaming discourse a bit shitty for about the last 10 years yeah um they seem to be they seem to have been orbiting cyberpunk and have now gone from being like this is the best game in the world how dare you even criticize a single element of it to i'm having a meltdown because this game is bad um or at least it's running badly or whatever and yeah i don't know it's really the whole thing's been quite irritating to follow the hype cycle of it you know yeah i think anyone who sort of defines themselves by their relationship with 
any specific game, or maybe even just general games, I think is always on a kind of um, hiding to nothing, really. Um, you know, you, you it becomes like a mad matter of pride, because you have either people who are kind of, you know, no, I've thrown my lot in with this game, it's going to be good no matter what, and they're like, well, my PS4 copy doesn't have any bugs. And it's like, well, it does, you know, you're a fucking liar, like, don't be mad. Like, That's fine, it's okay to say it does. And then you have the other people who just, yeah, they just turn instantly. You know, they go from issuing death threats to reviewers who say it's not great the week before to issuing death threats to CD Projekt Red a week later because the game's not what I thought it was going to be. Um, I think it's a bit unfair to bundle them in, say, like, they are cyberpunk fans or CD Projekt Red fans. Like, they're just the maniacs who, like you say, have just amassed around the hobby over the last 10 years. Mm. Um, I think they're just thoroughly unpleasant people, no matter what, what game is currently, you know, in their spotlight. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily on CD Projekt Red, even if I don't think they've been great at answering some of the critiques about the game, the game's tone yeah, and choices. Um, it's kind of amazing to see, you know, because I feel like that, that they were held up for so long, and I think part of the reason there was this hype around Cyberpunk is that they're the kind of, they're the good developer-publisher. You know, they don't do bullshit, and they still don't do a lot of bullshit. You know, they don't do microtransactions. They release one version of the game. There's not, like, loads of different premium editions. Um, you know, they release it DRM-free on GOG. You know, there's there's, there's a lot of stuff which ticks, like, pro-consumer boxes, mm. which is good and should be industry standards. But, yeah, it, then it comes at the cost of, you know, the stories come out about the cost on staff to actually make this game the actual state of it when it comes out i mean these are you know problems too big for people to look over i don't think actually a lot of people are swayed by crunch necessarily i think most the average gamer probably doesn't care um you know i'm not not saying that's right obviously um but when your actual game is broken and doesn't work that's the like no one can kind of get get by that (laughs) Yeah, this is this feels like the kind of launch that's going to follow them around um, probably for uh, forever. Um, just yeah. because gamers tend to have a oh, gamers, I'm sorry, you know, people who play games tend to have a long memory uh, with this stuff, and and so I don't know. You, you for every mistake that Bethesda's made, there is now kind of residu- residual criticism of Bethesda anytime they do anything. Yeah, and um, I feel like this launch going as badly as it has on uh, such a you know, on two major platforms, is just going to be like the thing people talk about with CD Projekt. But... Oh, definitely, they've they've got themselves sort of all memed up for life. Um, those gifts are just going to be haunting them. And it was interesting because I, I remember saying when I was reviewing this that you know a couple of other you know reviewers were getting in touch and saying like you know story you know did you do this in this mission or whatever, and you know I remember saying like I feel from a bug's perspective this game deserves the kind of shellacking that people will give a Bethesda game or gave Assassin's Creed Unity. And I was saying, I genuinely don't... I'm, I'm really interested to see if the community holds it up to the standards they've exacted on other games. Mm. You know, I, I wonder, you know, is the love for CD Projekt Red so much that people wouldn't give it the old kind of gift treatment? Um, turns out they have. Boy, have they! Uh, <laughs> like, I think I've 
I don't think I've actually seen any gifs of the game doing what it's meant to do, which it does a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, if anything, it goes so far, you'd think it's just... And it is glitch crazy, but there's plenty about this game which is masterful and works amazingly, and congratulations to the people who made those things. Um, and just to see it, like... I've almost gone the other way, where it's now the whole thing is just boiled down to, like you know cars exploding into the sky and stuff and i'm like oh man like i mean that stuff happens yes but like there's 30 hours of the game i played where that stuff didn't happen yeah and i was having a great time so i don't know i rough and to happen before christmas i would not want to be fixing that over the christmas holidays no it sounds like they're going to roll out um some major patches in january and february so hopefully that means the people working on it can get a break um yeah but it shouldn't have come out at this point. It's no. just and and yet you know that becomes a difficult question of like, well, how long do you go on making the game in the way they have to make it to finish it? Uh, do you extend that indefinitely? Ah, oh, it's such a complicated oh, thing. God, imagine the conversations because they must have looked at it. They know, right? You know, they're looking at this thing and they're like, have we got this to, to a point where like momentum will be on our side, hmm. or is this gonna like bite us in the ass and like? You know, when you have to personally put out a, you know, we'll put, you know, we'll help you get refunds for this base version if you're not able to get them naturally. Well, that's pretty bad. Uh, like that isn't. I'd say that's about as bad as it can go when you're having to kind of actively own up to it and say, you know, most people just say we're gonna we'll fix it, but to say like, eh, you know, here's the email address if you want to try and us to sort out a refund for you. That's uh. It's rough. That's rough. When you spend so long in it, they should have spent another year. The goodwill was there. People would have played it next year. They would have played it in two years' time. Yeah, and they made a big deal about the fact that The Witcher 3 sold more copies, I think, in 2019 or 2020 off the back of the uh, Witcher Netflix show being so popular. It was surely wasn't for a lack of money. Uh, surely not. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean... You know, I'm sure that whoever made that decision, you know, or whatever group of people made that decision, it's just something that's going to follow them around now. And um, do you think they can fix the game in time for the native next-gen console versions that are coming out next year? Yeah, I mean, you'd hope so. Because by all accounts, those versions are okay. You know, they've got like 60-frame performance modes and, you know, high, you know, a 30-frame uh, kind of quality mode on, on Xbox Series X anyway, which is you know, meant to be a much closer to the kind of the experience. Um, I mean, just looking at what a beast of a PC it needs to, to run, there's a question of like how far those next-gen consoles can actually go with what they've got inside them. Mm. Um, so uh, it's, it's, it's hard to say. I'm almost more interested in what the knock-on effect is for everyone else who's doing, who's currently got a cross-gen game in the pipeline. Mm. You know, like, are Microsoft now looking at Halo Infinite on Xbox One and going, is this good enough? You know, is this going to be a cyberpunk? You know, I wonder if anyone's having that conversation. Do we do we ditch? When do you ditch the last gen? Because this audience has now shown itself to have been not very forgiving of people who put out an inferior last gen product mm. um, in a way that I don't think we've ever really seen before. Uh, you know, of course, we're mainly talking about Xbox and PlayStation games here. So maybe, you know, these people, they know their consoles better than anyone. And PlayStation aren't going to put out something that looks like Cyberpunk does on PS4. 
you would hope. We touched on this a bit though. Like um, it's hard. To, it's hard to envision um, Horizon uh, Forbidden West on PS4 and PS5 being comparable without some one version having to compromise for the other in some way. Yeah, um, and it does make you think. Well. You know, you have the interest in PS5. Why not just move on? Like the PS4 does have a robust library. It's, I get wanting to kind of provide games for that audience, but um, I don't know. It, it seems like you don't have to do it for every game. Miles Morales is a kind of good choice for a cross-gen game, but I don't know. yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Some yeah, maybe this is just a, you know maybe Cyberpunk just is a next-gen game, and yeah. there comes a point where you just have to accept that and go, well, we shouldn't have tried, really. Yeah. Well, uh, we're going to take a brief break, uh, Matthew, but then we're going to come back and talk a bit about um, covering big game launches and what that's like and uh, how that's changed over the years. Tasty. Yeah. Welcome back. We're talking in uh, part two about big games that launch. In fact, I just said this if you're listening to the podcast, so why am I saying it again? Nonetheless, we're going to talk a bit about covering big <laughs> games um, from a review perspective. Maybe they forgot in the musical interlude. <laughs> exactly, yeah. You're just so dazzled by the piece of music of uh, from Cyberpunk that I didn't license and then cut into this podcast. <laughs> uh, not to get too behind the curtain there. Um, yeah, so Matthew, you and I have covered big games, um, different types of big games at... Uh, a review stage and um in some ways that process has stayed the same in some ways it hasn't um so i think what fundamentally like um what was it like covering uh, a, a, a big game review in the early days of working on magazines for you um compared to working on a website and covering it now so you know the obvious dis- difference is time um we're not trying to get something up to an online embargo we're trying to get something up, you know, something good in the magazine, which will come out a month later. I mean, by the time I started working in mags, the age of early review access, or at least early enough for magazines, was such that it it, it didn't happen very often. Like, we were very rarely had a timely review. Um, maybe tied to an exclusive cover, we could occasionally get early access. Um, and actually, Nintendo first party which I'll talk in talk about a bit in detail a bit later, um, are often finished so far in advance that they can also um, be reviewed in time for a magazine deadline and still be out before they're out, which which is which is great. Um, but I mean, uh, because I was on Nintendo Mags, I feel like my relationship with these big games was different because you know the big games for us were just Nintendo games. And so, you know, like I say, they finished them early, you had more time with them, you know, we ha- we formed a different relationship with reviewing them through that. I was always a lot more interested about my peers reviewing big games on 360 or PS3, which I myself as a punter really wanted to play. So, you know, something like a GTA, for example. Did you ever, did you ever review a GTA? I reviewed both GTA 4 and GTA 5. I mean, they're in my mind. They've got to be the big. They're they're like the biggies, right? Yes, uh, and I would say that GTA Five was a much better experience than GTA Four um, because GTA Four was a review event um, done with a finite number of days, whereas GTA Five we had code and quite a, a long embargo, like a week, I think, before um, the embargo lifted, which was nice and generous. Um, so yeah, that. 
hell of a process reviewing a GTA. It's a it's a, a lot of game to pack into a short space of time, you know. <laughs> so yeah, you were kind of looking at that on from afar. So um, what was like the first big game you reviewed then? So the, I guess it's probably Super Mario Galaxy mm. in terms of like mega hype, in terms of the magazine sort of lineage. And I've talked about this before, like a, a defining part of N64 and NGC magazine were the big reviews of Mario and Zelda. You know, they were opportunities for writers to really, like, strut their stuff. And, you know, they were going to be big special games. You kind of knew that going in. So they required a big special write-up. They were, uh, for a long time, uh, those real biggies were reviewed at Nintendo Windsor. So we'd go to Nintendo UK's office in Windsor, which is um, quite a funny place to go and review a game. Uh, there are quite a few publishers in Windsor, actually. Two Ks there as well. Yeah, it's quite um, weird, isn't it? I wonder what the what the origin of that is. I guess but, quite close to London yeah. and quite nice. But, think, but that's the thing, you know, the Queen's there. So you get off the train and there's like the Queen's house, <laughs> a big castle. The town is very quaint because it's the Queen lives there, so it's not a shithole because otherwise she'd be furious. I feel about 20% too tall for Windsor. I don't know about you. I don't, yeah, like, I don't yeah, quite fit I, in yeah. the buildings. Yeah. Very big in Windsor. Um, <laughs> they have like a regular parades because I guess the Queen likes to see them out of her window. Mm. So there's a lot of... Um, yeah, it's kind of a strange town to go and review a game. So you've kind of got that element... Um, then you obviously go and sit in a room and, and, and play a game. Um, Nintendo UK didn't do big review events. Like They were very good at getting press in early because they, they only had two Nintendo magazines. So they, they were good at getting print in early, I should say. So it would be O&M and us, basically, at this point. Maybe N Revolution was still on the scene. I can't remember. Mm. Um, and, yeah, you'd just go in and it would be you in this little room um, playing yeah Mario Galaxy for you know three or four days and they'd put you up in a little hotel so you could play until quite late and then you'd go and stay in the hotel and get back up and come back out um there is something so strange about opening a door to a little office and seeing on the tv like the title screen of something which is mega exciting to you Mm. because you're just like oh wow here it is it's like ready for me um yeah and in terms of actually playing it you know, again, one of the, the privileges of reviewing Nintendo games is that, you know, they are quite secretive about them. They don't release a huge amount about them beforehand, even less so back in 2007. You know, there wasn't all this, you know, endless treehouse streams or whatever. So you really felt like you were a very early pair of eyes on this thing. It was all fresh. It was all new. Um, there was a huge amount of hype around it, but generally like nintendo games this is a horrible generalization generally they deliver um which is one of the big pleasures of writing about nintendo games i think Mm. is that it's quite rare that they shit the bed and you know when they do it's kind of a bit nightmarish because fans really aren't like ready for it but it's quite rare so you know i didn't really have to kind of deal with that obstacle too much so not on um audio we've talked you and i have talked a bit about what it was like for you to write the review of Mario Galaxy and the weight you felt of that. Yeah. Um, what was that like for you, if you don't mind talking about it? Yeah, it was really stressful because I went in and I wanted to I wanted to write a review that people would be like would link with that magazine forever. Which sounds really pretentious, but 
that's what had happened with reviews in the past. You know, I wanted to write something. You were like, oh, yeah, remember that absolutely legendary review of of Mario Galaxy? Mm. Like, that's what I wanted. I wanted the review to be as good as the game and feel as special as the game. You know, this is a game that, like, I had a profoundly entertaining time with. You know, it is one of the best games I've ever played. It's probably my favourite game of all time. And, like, the pressure there of, like, I have to pin this down. I have to convey this, you know... I almost need to, like, in my head anyway, I felt like I need to sort of step up. You know, it can't read like any other review I've ever done because I don't want this to feel like any other game. I'm trying to convey the golfing quality here. And, yeah, I, I kind of, I went a bit mad. Like, I'm not massively pleased with that Mario Galaxy review. Um, I think it's solid and gets the job done, but, like, the uh, the pressure of it kind of got to my head a bit. And I was thinking about that legacy a bit too much rather than just sort of going with the game because the game's so free and easy. It's it's so sort of smooth going and confident in itself. And that's the energy you kind of needed to tap into rather than this, this is momentous. The game doesn't behave like that. Um, again, you may be rolling your eyes at this, listening to this. <laughs> uh, but that's kind of how I, that is kind of how I felt about it. I ended up writing the review and listening to the, the the tune from Gusty Garden Galaxy, which had been put online on a YouTube video. There's a there's a clip of them, an orchestra playing it um, for the recording session, and like Miyamoto sitting on a couch, and the look on his face is like the quality of Mario Galaxy. It's just a man who is pure. Like this is it. This is the good shit. <laughs> and I listened to that tune over and over again, and I was trying to, like, I wanted the review to feel like that, like, to feel like that tune. Like, I even had, I had a, we had footnotes in Endgamer. I think there was even a footnote right at the start that said, put this tune on a loop when you read this review. Like, this is the kind of, this is the, this is the theme to this review. Um, and, yeah, but that's just mad. When I look back at it now, I'm like, wow, this really, this really missed the point. Like, I, I got, I, I I feel like I nailed down equally big games much better when I didn't have those worries. Mm. Um, like for example, when I when I reviewed um, Breath of the Wild for Games Radar, you know I like Games Radar as a site. I don't have any emotional connection to that to, to that site at all. Um, but when I wrote that review, you know I, that is one of my favourite things I've ever written, and I think it's because I didn't have all this stupid baggage of like. Oh, I've got something to live up to. I was just trying to write a good review of the game, and it that allowed it to click. Um, the Mario Galaxy Two review is even worse for this. Instantly, if you've, if you've got any old copies of Endgamer, um, I don't think you can find this review online anymore. But like, basically, the last two paragraphs became like a, a sort of weird meta debate about whether I could score this higher than Mario Galaxy, and I. I put in this this reference to something Greeny used to talk about. Like every point you went over ninety um, was like when they they pushed um, the Enterprise a little bit faster in Star Trek, and it would all begin to shake, and you'd get Scotty going, "No, we can't take it, we can't take it." And this idea of that pushing into those real upper echelon scores, you know, it was just such a 
it's for something to kind of like withstand the kind of pressure and actually deliver up there was was sort of super hard and that got stuck in my head and I started talking about that and so the review ends on this really irritating note where I start talking about numbers and the uh, and reviewing rather than the game so I absolutely shit the bed on on Galaxy Two as well, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I was just so excited to play those games. I mean. I you know I, I loved reading those reviews back in the past and it's still you know to this day I think I think it is a real you know again not to be too soppy it is like a, a real privilege to review something that good mm. and and get a shot at it and you you don't want to like get it wrong you don't want to do it a disservice you know you feel like I want to rise to the occasion this the best games ever should have the best reviews ever not always the case uh, yeah. I, I definitely had the feeling of sort of um, a similar level of pressure, but also the kind of feeling, right, this is the main event. Like, there's not going to be a bigger thing that happens <laughs> right. this year in my career than reviewing a GTA game. Um, and so I was also quite young when I reviewed GTA 4 and Metal Gear Solid 4. I think I reviewed both of those very close together because for some reason I ended up doing both instead of going to... I was meant to do. I think I was meant to do um, Metal Metal Gear, and then someone else was meant to do GTA. And then, in two, I think it was in like a two week period, I went to the GTA review event and the Metal Gear Solid oh, Four wow. review event. I'm amazed they weren't snarfed by like editors. <laughs> well, I think that um, I don't know. I guess the my editor at the time had his reasons for not doing it, but um, no one liked Metal Gear more than me on team. Um, right, but people did like GTA more than me. I think um, I, I hadn't finished San Andreas and I reviewed um, GTA Four. Uh, but um, yeah, I uh, I don't think I don't think I did a good job with either of those. Um, and I'm I'm trying to think of a game where I really nailed it. And I think Mass Effect Two was the first game where I I felt like I really nailed it. So that came out early 2010, and um, that also represented one of the best review experiences because EA and Bioware they sent out the game came out in January and they sent out review code uh, before the break in December. So I took a debug, which you need is like a you know like a developer console. You need to review um you know this these yeah. these early builds of games just for people who didn't know. And um, I took that to my parents' house and played Mass Effect Two all Christmas, and that was a phenomenally good experience. Um, even though I couldn't import my save, which in retrospect maybe I should have I should have been able to do that so I could actually make a call on how important it is to carry across mm-hmm. your choices, but. Nonetheless, Mass Effect 2 is obviously a phenomenally good game. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that was... I mean, I, I really liked... The, the naughtiest thing I did with that review was my friend Andrew came round and I showed him the bit at the start where the Normandy blew up and that's definitely like breaking some kind of embargo. Oh, you showed it to an outsider. <laughs> I just said to him, look, do not tell anyone, but the, <laughs> the Normandy blows up, okay? <laughs> I don't know if EA can still get me done for that, but uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> It didn't tell anyone anyway. Um, that was just really good because I, I, I finished the whole thing while in my parents' house, sat on a massive couch and just drinking increasing amounts of eggnog. And then when I got back, I think I had a, about four days to write the review, so it ended up being ended up oh, being pretty good. That sounds great. Yeah, and it was the end, it was the first ten out of ten I gave because I worked on play, so it was all percentages and and, yeah. and none of the scores are, you know are equivalent to a ten out of ten. So. Yeah, putting on Mass Effect 2, it felt right. And um, I think um, that stood the test of time, that score. Yeah. Um, yeah, a really good process. But um, yeah, it varies wildly. I've uh, 
Did I've you have also... any really night? Did you have any really nightmarish ones? I mean, did you ever, did you ever run into any like embargo craziness? Uh, Metal Gear Solid Four was that really with yeah. um, the fact that you couldn't talk about anything beyond the first two um, levels out of five. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think that was it, or, or at least you could only touch on vague elements, so you couldn't do a proper critique of the game, um, and it was kind of irritating um, at the time. But I, I've um, I don't know. I I remember one that I didn't do, but I remember being like um, quite a complicated thing to work out was. Uh, on PC Gamer, when Dishonored 2 came out on PC, it had a, a whole load of problems at running on PC yeah. um, at launch. And so it became a difficult question of like, oh, do we review the game now when the score probably won't hold up in whenever they fix it? Or do we wait and see if they'll patch it and, and it'll work? And yeah. uh, we waited like a week, I think. And then Phil Savage, uh, my former colleague who reviewed it at the time, gave it a really high score and that was the right thing to do because that game you know is one of the best games of the last generation certainly um just and you know if you give it impulsively give it a score um you know let's say you scored it like 72 percent because this doesn't work properly on pc then it works properly a week later your score hasn't stood the test of time and if you're changing scores then some might argue that that kind of you know undermines the process a little bit so it's complicated sometimes for sure you know yeah that that is yeah that's that's tricky that Mm. that big decision of like holding back i mean i've never i've never worked on a website i've only worked on print and then video so i feel like i've not i've not really had to deal with that that question myself in terms of you know do we sit on this past embargo to kind of get it right or see what happens Mm. um it's kind of a call i i would i would probably hate to make yeah, and there are some other things that um, factor in when you're reviewing games too. Like, I didn't really think about this at the time, but uh, you know, part of the dream of um, GTA Four, uh, sorry, no, not GTA Four, GTA Five, was that they they were doing these heists in the in the main game, and then the online multiplayer was going to have some kind of heist content as well. And um, the online wasn't even available with GTA Five when it launched. It launched a little bit later, and so. You know, ultimately, GTA Online is the thing that defined that game. Mm. And we, you know, my 10 out of 10 from 2013 doesn't quite, doesn't necessarily stand the test of time. And if you look up a GTA 5 review now, you might find an updated one that factors in some of that stuff, but not on all across all outlets. So, mm. um, yeah, finding actual criticism of what the product is now, I mean, in a game that changes so often, it's very hard to do. Um, so, yeah, yeah. that's. I think it that can also happen with games that don't change massively. You know, like one of the interesting things from the last couple of years has been reviewing games on PC, which came out on console like a year or so before mm. and had like huge, uh, confusing discourse around them. So the two things that jump out are Red Dead 2 and Death Stranding. Mm. Uh, like... I think I didn't write a I didn't write a formal review of Death Stranding. I did a review video, but I did write Rock Paper Shotgun's Red Dead Two review, and I'm I'm really pleased with both those things. Like I felt like they were, you know, I feel like they were almost stronger because other people had kind of been through the wars with them earlier, and I'd read all the reviews when they first came out, and I'd sort of you know seen the discourse, and actually having a bit of distance from it was really nice. I felt like. Uh, particularly with Death Stranding, you know, there was there was so much confusion when it came out on PS4 about what it was going to be, and I felt like a lot of reviews spent so much time dealing with, oh, this is what Kojima did next, that they maybe didn't, like, get into the game quite as well as they could have. Um, 
you know, I'm, I'm, I don't mean this. Probably sounds like I'm saying all those early reviews were shit and mine was good. Um, but I feel generally the reviews of, of Death Stranding were much more satisfying to read when it came out on PC. Hmm. Like I felt like everyone just, I don't know, the fog had cleared a bit, and there wasn't any kind of like pressure to deal with the you know the big Kojima ness of it. You could just talk about what it was, and as a result, you know. There are fewer reviews because not everyone reviewed the PC version, but the few people who did, I think, you know, really nailed it in a way that a lot of people didn't on PS4. But maybe that's just me bigging up, you no, know, the work I did. I think um, you definitely um, you don't have to answer the question of what is this as much, um, which is uh, you know something everyone was wondering about Death Stranding before it came out on mm. consoles. So. I definitely see what you mean there. Uh, being uncoupled from it must have been quite refreshing. I mean, it feels like just generally better received on PC. Maybe it fits PC better. Like maybe it's weird walking sim, sort of physicsy hiking simulator stuff is just a more natural fit. Um, mm. But the fact that it won like you know best PC game at the Golden Joysticks and you know has featured quite highly on on some pc gaming sites like list you know games of the year or whatever speaks to i don't know if, if it's just a natural fit or like free of of the discourse we can enjoy it more i don't know but it, it definitely i feel like it's had a proper sort of go of it this year that it didn't necessarily last year yeah i think that the i think you've really tapped into something there with maybe this is a better fit for a pc audience because yeah it, the kind of odd pace of it and the the overall strangeness of it and the the type of game it is does seem very does seem very PC actually when you kind of lay it out like that mm. like um it kind of really feels like one of those kind of oddities that slowly catches on um in like early access and then when it comes out people just really love it and it just sells in the steam sale forever like it yeah it, it feels like one of those kind of games that just happens to be in, have Hideo Kojima um involved um mm. it's quite unusual but maybe it just speaks to the ways that um games are changing and becoming less defined by their platforms particularly on um you know on uh, sort of next gen hardware um but yeah, I, I can I can think of a couple more um, sort of points on reviews. There's um, also the review in progress is a tricky thing oh, to do. Right. I've never done one of these. Yeah, so uh, I did a couple of these. I did one for Metal Gear Solid Five when I was reviewing that um, because it's such a long game that I, just that feeling of you have to have something up on the site. Yeah, you ideally want something on the site so people can make informed decisions about buying it. Um, but also you're not ready to give it a score. So, you know, it exists as this kind of like almost a preview feature meets a review, just kind of like a really in-depth hands-on, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so I think I did... I thought The annoying thing is I think I did a really good job with the review in progress for Metal Gear Solid Five, and then a worse job with a finished review. Oh, right. Um, so I, it wasn't... You don't, like, modify the preview into the review? It depends. I guess everyone, everyone's process depends. I think I did an entirely new draft for... Um, for in that case right. and end up scrapping one of my better like analogies in the opening paragraph that I couldn't quite <laughs> nail the second time around so <laughs> I don't know why I tortured myself like that um, but, and, um, but the Division 2 that was one I did a review in progress for and I did quite enjoy that actually because um, that that is a game that I did slowly fall in love with. I really I really enjoyed that game. Um, even though I think people should stop making looter shooters because uh, I just think the market for those has completely died and no one really cares anymore. But um, 
yeah, I yeah, uh, I really I re- I enjoyed I enjoyed reviewing that and digging slowly into it and um yeah, I think I after 20 hours I did a review in progress and 50 hours when I gave it a score, but I will I will say that doing it online versus print it's much more intensive because you have commenters and you know right. people swarming onto the site to find out what you think of it and stuff like that. And again, I'm not like discounting the fact that it's a very very privileged position to be in. Yeah. Um and uh, it's just not quite as sort of like it's a lot more zen doing it for a magazine because you're like yeah. even if people are angry at it, they're probably not going to send in an email or a letter or anything like that because the people who read your magazine generally it's like habitual purchasers so they're people who know who the staff is and know what the kind of overall vibe of the magazine is therefore they're less likely to get mad than some rando on the internet <laughs> the idea of someone picking up like maybe the one issue they ever pick up of a magazine and having just such an aggressive reaction to the review that they have to write an angry letter <laughs> yeah, exactly. to, to a complete stranger right, so i we in our in our notes here for the show matthew i really want to ask about smash bros because I never reviewed one of those, and I would have done a terrible job. Um, you said scoring Smash Bros. is a nightmare. Talk me through that. Yeah, so uh, I guess this sort of... Uh, maybe this speaks a little bit to the relationship people have with multiplayer games. And we went into this a little bit with Mario Kart when we talked about scores we regret. Making a shout on something which you're meant to play for hundreds, if not thousands of hours with your mates in a very naturalistic setting is uh it's very very hard to replicate any of that experience in a in a review situation you know you're either at a review event and you get to play like five hours of it and then you have to just go well and here's what i think of like this game's potential so that's that's definitely a big problem with smash brothers um is the multiplayer element and the other thing is just the um the kind of passion around certain iterations of it and what people actually value in that game is really, really hard to pin pin down mm. and varies from person to person. So I reviewed um, Super Smash Brothers Brawl, which was the Wii one, mm. and not I, a well liked version of the game. Not well, yeah, but at the time it was about as exciting as a, as anything could seem. You know, it had so much more than melee you know and i don't think it's loved as a like mechanical game like it's not used in any of the the hardcore fighting things but i don't give a shit about any of that you know like that is not a side of the game i care about it's uh just not interested um you know in my mind it was just all these amazing characters and there was so much fan service and i I think i made the point in the review you know you could just buy that game as an audio as a soundtrack collection and it would be worth more than 50 quid because mm. it's got like 500 remixes of like tunes from all these different franchises. I mean, it's absurd. I mean, I downloaded the soundtrack onto my PC at work and that's basically all I listened to while I was writing Endgamer for the next sort of five years was just the soundtrack to Smash Brothers Brawl. Um, I got weirdly into the Sonic stuff. Um, oh, for you, that is weird. Yeah, yeah I really don't know what happened. Um, <laughs> Rough year. Um, and uh, it had some Metal Gear stuff on there, but like to get the original Metal Gear solid composers to like remix their stuff for Smash Brothers, that's crazy. Um, but yeah, in terms of like trying to just go, trying to make it feel as relaxed as possible, so that you could kind of get a feel for how the game would play in your living room. You know, all I really had was like the other reviewers playing it, which mainly was like Rich Stanton, I think, was reviewing it. So it was me and Rich playing it every lunchtime for a month. So we imported the Japanese versions. We had it early um, and just trying to play at lunch. And 
get into you know, and then I was sort of reviewing that against the memories of playing with melee with my brother which is who I played that game with and trying to kind of pin down kind of how it felt in comparison to that which in hindsight is such a weird specific angle to take you know like this game is good if it reminds me of the good times I had with my brother um and if it doesn't I'm going to you know give this game a big nasty score um at the time it gave it 93 I think yeah and people said that was way like people were cross that it was low Mm, right so you've that you've tapped into something interesting there which is i think your score there is um is bang on for your audience and also the people who are looking at your review for buying guide advice are not the people who look at smash bros as like a fighting game community thing they're going to buy the game anyway yeah Um, and so you're more kind of reviewing it for that type of person like you who might have memories of like um you know one of your siblings um picked kirby and completely fucked the other player up on the n64 version because that's what smash bros was um and you know you're carrying all this kind of like these memories into it and so you're right i mean i i did enjoy brawl i played like more than 50 hours of it and the music uh, fan service side of it and the different levels they packed in from the gamecube version from melee an amazing an amazing suite of stuff like you couldn't you couldn't miss it if you're a nintendo fan but, yeah, um, what, but what, what, what the, you think it was? So people said it was too low to you. you yeah, said. but I, I, I've got a feeling actually it wasn't necessarily in gamer fans. But back in the day, our reviews would get pulled into CVG as like online reviews, hmm. and taken out of the context of the magazine. I think sometimes we would encounter an audience who the review simply wasn't aimed at, and so they they would be like, oh, the the com-, you know what he says about the actual fighting in this is 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 completely like you know naive or doesn't go into any kind of depth or these opinions are rank or da 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 but yeah and then somehow like that got folded back into just the magazine narrative that people were down on it i think because we had a we had like a forum on cvg so some of the end gamer super fans would have encountered that negative feedback as well and it definitely bled back into the mag that it was a a score that i'd either underscored or you know, it was a running joke that people were cross with that review. I think we gave away a sticker sheet which had like a sticker of 98 that you could go back and stick over it in the review <laughs> to make it a review that was more to your liking, which is actually just a rip off of a gag that they did years before that when um, NGC reviewed Dinosaur Planet and gave it like 70 or something because it was a load of old shit. And people couldn't comprehend that Rare had made a bad game. So then they did like a, here's the 90, you know, you stick this 90 on it or whatever. Um, um, if that will make you happier, I think uh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like that kind of stuff. So it was a bit, even that, like, even the conversation around that became like a, a a bit of a reference and a nod to like magazine history. That's how kind of wrapped up and meta it could be at times. That's kind of what you want, really, isn't it? Like, yeah, well, um, that's that's what I want. You know, I love that stuff, and to me, you know, I thought, oh, if I was if I was a long term reader of this, you know. This this would speak to me, and hopefully people did dig it. And I think people do remember remember those um, moments. It's referenced on the Endgamer Wikipedia page, the kind of controversy of giving it ninety three. Um, but I think that's that's like one of the only times that I got a really like spicy spicy reaction because most of the time it was just me going like amazing Nintendo game is amazing. Yeah. Um, hilariously i remember when um uh Stu campbell of amiga power 
created a f- account on our forums just to absolutely slam a really throwaway 100 word review of a metal slug ds port that i'd written right <laughs> so i managed to draw out but i like the idea that someone had read this thing it was just so irate that they had to come in and and do that um that made me laugh but um yeah i kind of I don't know. Some people have it as a badge of honour that they've like pissed people off, you know, as if you're doing the, you know, somehow that's doing the job right or whatever. But um, I, I don't know. I like to feel that my reviews justified their scores in the text, so no one ever got too upset. Yeah, I must admit, I kind of avoided games that were like really spicy um, or kind of contentious. And um, though I did write about game, uh, games uh, around the review, doing other types of content um for when when things weren't going so smoothly so anthem was quite an interesting example Mm. um so uh, steven messner and pc game in the u.s reviewed um uh reviewed anthem Uh, he's canadian actually i should point that out um (laughs) but um he reviewed anthem and so it was a weird one because i think that there wasn't review code at first and the game came out on ea's um uh, play uh subscription service and uh i think you could download it on pc a week before you could get on consoles which was kind of strange and um Obviously, Anthem was bad in a whole bunch of ways. It was yeah. really, really disappointing. Um, and I felt bad for Bioware. But when you read about the making of that game, um, Jason Schreier's very good Kotaku piece on it, it does seem like it was so badly handled. Yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, and I, I wrote about... Um, there was a quest in the game where they were obviously padding out the game for time. You had to repeat the same type of side quest over and over again to accumulate these resources to open a tomb, I think it was, right, um, yeah. in, to progress the story. And um, it got such a bad response in the EA Play um, portion, they cut down the amount of time it took to do. And I wrote a um, news story that said, um, Anthem's worst quest has already been improved. And uh, Microsoft, who uh, Mike Ibarra, who was at Microsoft at the time, an executive, um, tweeted, um, this was actually very easy to do, amazed at the whining. <laughs> and um, there was some... <laughs> Like I would say, like some criticism of, uh, like I would say, like inadvertent or indirect criticism of reviewers in some of the replies in the in below. Yeah, and um, that's it. Doesn't happen that often that where an executive is kind of getting involved. Um, usually, um, you know, pu- publishers and developers, even though I'm sure they have very strong opinions on the reviews that are published, are very professional about staying out that, of it. And I've had only one truly awkward review score pr experience which was being on a press trip with someone and them reading an issue of endgamer that they clearly hadn't seen yet <laughs> and seeing that we'd scored it was it was uh, it was on a trip to see pokemon and i saw the nintendo pr flicking through our new issue and uh, which i'd had with me for whatever reason and uh, we'd given an absolute kicking to a um I think they'd done a twenty, like a twentieth or twenty fifth anniversary re-release of uh, the original Super Mario Brothers on Wii, but tried to like package it, like basically package up a NES ROM, like it was something special, and we'd given it an absolute kicking for just being like shady as fuck that they'd done this. And I remember him reading this review and having like a, a real time reaction to it from him of like, oh, this is a bit, this is a bit fierce. <laughs> 
<laughs> I remember thinking, like, well, you know, we're stuck here in Tokyo together, so it's what are you going to do? You know, you're going to, like, leave me here? Like, <laughs> how are you going to punish us? Um, <laughs> but that was that was quite awkward. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'd almost, like, could you not have like avoided handing him the copy is that i'd a... forgotten it was in there ah. <laughs> to be honest I see. okay great stuff well um that seems like a good point to wrap it up matthew and uh, uh unless you had anything to add on the review front or anything to ask me about my experiences doing it but um uh, no I, I was i was you know I, I was interested to hear about your gta experiences and i'm kind of interested to see what what happens next year because i can't really identify the next big hype thing is like there isn't really one on the horizon so um you know that would be intrigue intriguing obviously on this podcast it's hitman 3 yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah it's true that there's no after cyberpunk there's nothing else like it in terms yeah, of um, i mean i guess we'll get into gta 6 territory at some point yeah and even that there's been rumors that that might um start small then build up um mm. and be more kind of live servicey um with like regular updates which would i think like um i think the suggestion of these rumors was that that would uh, lower the workload on um, rockstar to actually make it um right but but you know to me i i stopped thinking of rockstar games as being anything that comes out more than like once every five years i don't yeah i think that's for the best yeah so um yeah i think that for for now there is no um comparison point to cyberpunk but certainly what's happened to it really reminds me of what i've seen with um over and over again it's when games are around for two years in the marketing cycle it just they hang around too long the expectations get too high and it's inevitably someone's going to be disappointed when it comes out unless you're is really kind of a lightning and bottle scenario when it doesn't happen mm. um but yeah i uh i don't know it's a, a complicated old thing because the hype the hype thing is it's excited to get invested in a game i would say um even if you're you know not kind of one of the people we describe who get too invested and upset when the game's criticized i think it's still it's good to be excited about games it just is you know you see a game getting announced everyone in my twitter feed was watching the game awards and you know saw new trailers for people got excited about sephiroth being added to smash bros you know it's hype hype and marketing it's, <laughs> it's all part of the the whole thing but um yeah it's just sometimes it gets carried away were you excited about sephiroth and smash bros matthew Not really i don't really care for final fantasy 7 too much so yeah okay is there a character in smash bros that you're waiting on um that you uh, if they added like uh, professor layton or phoenix right those are good calls but uh you know I, I doubt it'll happen <laughs> okay great well we'll wrap up there then matthew so um if you would like to uh, tweet us your feedback on the podcast we're backpage pod on twitter uh, you can also email us any thoughts you have at backpagegames at gmail.com um you are also welcome to leave us a review on itunes we've had a, a few scores on itunes um not, it's not even called itunes anymore it's called apple Podcasts. <laughs> that's how out of touch i am with uh, the world of apple working on techradar.com uh, pretty embarrassing um so uh, and matthew you can be followed on twitter right yeah at mr basil underscore pesto yep and i'm samuel w roberts on twitter uh, our last podcast of the year uh actually will this be out this year i don't think it will be we technically be out on the first of january and um, that will be uh our podcast on the best games of the year um so it'll be a bit unconventional because uh matthew i don't know about you but i've had a very strange year for playing games so um, my top 10 will look quite odd I think. <laughs> um, but um, i'm looking forward to recording that one um so thank you very much for listening and uh yes we'll be back next week bye bye